podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast in association with Charles Tirrett, who are supporting the podcast in the build-up to the Ashes and across Wisdom's coverage of the series. Known for their stylish shirts, it's worth checking out their knitwear range, including their crew necks, their v-necks, or even their zip necks. Available in a variety of colours and perfect for wearing both in the office or even when you're working at home. During this period, we'll be offering a discount for our listeners. If you use the code WISDOM20 at checkout, as the code suggests, you'll get 20% off your order. That's code WISDOM20, and we'll put the link to their website in the description for this show. Um, we are less than 48 hours away from the start of the 2021-22 Ashes. I'm Yasrana, and to look forward to the first test at the Gabba, talk about everything else that's going on in the world of cricket at the moment, and to answer your questions, we have former England captain Mark Butcher, the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and the editor-in-chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. Um, before we get into pre-season predictions, lineup analysis and all that, I want to gauge your current levels of Ashes excitement. Um, Joe, are you up for it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? We did just go through, just before we started recording, through a few stats which kind of brought me back down to earth. But, um, but yeah, I'm certainly up for watching it. I'm not sure I think England can win it. Um but I don't think they'll get blown away, and there's something to be, there's, that, that's room to be positive anyway. Just to think <laughs> that we won't lose five nil, which I don't think we will. Um, and most positive reason to be uh, encouraged at this stage is, is the weather in Brisbane. We look like we might not have to actually play much of a game. Which there's no better start to an Ashes series than that, I think. And Phil, what, what about you? How, how how excited are you for the start of the Ashes? Ten to eleven on a Monday morning. Um, it's been a long weekend. Uh, I'm sure. Throw it forward 48 hours and I'll be buzzing. Yes, absolutely. Um, it, it has been a peculiar build-up to the whole thing, isn't it? Unprecedented, really. It's really strange. Yeah, obviously the virus, the weather, the Tim Payne, the English cricket existential crisis, which may, you may have noticed, I don't know, has been playing out the last few weeks. So yeah, it's been a very, very peculiar uh, build-up to it and it does sort of contribute, I think, to feeling slightly not quite one one thing or another yet. Um, you always assume that it's going to be this kind of azure sky at Brisbane and all the rest of it and, you know, the slavering in the bleachers waiting to get, get their teeth into the English and all of that. But at the moment, as Joe alludes to, you don't really know what to expect. We could be looking at rain for a day or two and then suddenly it opens opens everything up because England have to get out of the gabbertoire. <laughs> As you well know, Mark Butcher. Yeah, Butcher, how are you feeling about it comparing to uh, other series since you stopped playing? Uh, what's, your, what's your excitement <laughs> levels? Um, I don't know. It, it, I know the build-up has been sort of bubbling along, um, but it's mainly been along the lines of, um, you know, are the, are the borders going to be open? Which states are we going to be playing the test matches in? Um, has anybody managed to play any cricket whatsoever in the lead-up? It hasn't really, it hasn't captured the imagination. It's not been a classic Ashes build-up, let's put it that way. Um, and it'd just, just be nice to have some have England back on the park again. I think um, the the whole um, the whole talk about the series at the moment is about uh, the usual thing when you go down under. Really, is, are England going to be able to take twenty wickets? What are they going to do in terms of um, balancing their side with or, or, or the spin option that they're going to need in terms in trying to win down there? Um, can they sort of get rid of? 
Smith and Labuschagne. Um, and for us, it's kind of like will will Anderson and Broad manage to get through another Ashes series at their relative? What are they now? What seventy five between them or something? Um, and and will Stuart Broad continue to sort of torment David Warner around the wicket? I mean, beyond that, there are just so many unknowns from for both teams. You know, they've got this young lad Green, um, England's sort of fledgling partnership between Burns and Hamid at the top of the order. Is David Malang going to kick, nail down number three? Will Ben Stokes's return to the side mean that we win the series 2-1, 3-1, 4-1? All of these things are imponderable um, and things that we'll all be doubtless um, kicking ourselves for, for wondering about at five o'clock in the morning come, uh, come Wednesday. I'm just desperate that it's a good series cricket needs it desperately both of these teams need it as well and they're both middling test teams and so they need to put on a show from a from the game's perspective from the the reputational element of the game for sure but also for the 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 integrity of the of the of, of the build-up around it you know the, the the brouhaha around what the ashes is it needs a good series um joe Joe was there for 10-11. I, I was there for the three, well, the two two before that, no, the one before that and then the two after it. I've seen 15 or test matches in Australia and I've never seen England win a game. And that's that's that, that, that's what it's like. That's what you you come to expect. So I I tend to think that it will be uh, a back and forth. I'm, I'd hesitate to call it a humdinger because you're going to get some pretty dry periods as well, I think, with two uneven teams. But I don't think it's going to be a walkover. Uh and it has been so many times before that the the lustre around the ashes has dimmed a bit. I think in recent years. And that's actually we're, we're we're joking from a very English perspective about the weather, but it's really not what this series needs. Some rain to start it off. It, it feels kind of in keeping with the whole mood of the thing. Uh, my overwhelming sense is just that no one's ready for it, and I kind of include myself in that. Really, I don't know. It's because we've got a magazine going to print in two days. I feel like need to get that done first before I can focus on the Ashes. But certainly you look at Pat Cummins. I mean, is he ready to be a test captain? He didn't know he was going to be doing it just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, is Ben Stokes ready to be playing test cricket yeah. again when he's... Yeah, well, he, he looked like he was hitting them all right the other day, wasn't he? But that was England bowlers that he was smashing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure you could look at that two ways. Um, neither side have really had much prep at all, apart from the guys who have been playing in the T20 World Cup, warmed up with some slogging and, and all that kind of stuff out in the UAE which couldn't be further removed from what they're going to have over the next couple of months so the sense is you kind of need to get into it to then start to really kind of enjoy it and, and, and Brisbane looks like it might be a bit of a kind of false start. But do you remember when the squad drew out? We, we were really underwhelmed by, by the England squad obviously this is pre, pre-Stokes and I wonder part of that is because of how the lot 2017-18 was, a, was just a bad series to watch England weren't really in it England spent half the series trying to get. It weren't just worrying about Smith. It was. It was couldn't get the Marsh brothers out, etc. England didn't have a very good team, and I, I think that impacted people's how much they're looking looking forward to the series. And also, there just hasn't been an Ashes series in Australia that's been live going into the last test of the series, other than I guess Sydney in ten eleven. Um, Before that, very it would have been the series that you played in, I think. When the, when you were going into that final test match, and it was still it was still available, you know, two one down. To oh, what, 1998, 99? Yeah, I think that would have been the last one before Christ. 10, 11 when the yeah. f- fifth test was live in Australia. Yeah, yeah. And, and we probably should have won it. Yeah, it? well, the, the famous run out. Yeah. Um, I, but I, I mean, I think that's part of the issue here is that England's record in Australia is so awful. Um, and this team has shown, has shown very little in the way of being able to take care of itself, uh, perhaps even at home, let alone in a place where they hardly ever win any test matches. 
that the expectation levels, plus the fact that it is through the middle of the night in the depths of winter, kind of make it underwhelming until England give you a reason to make it whelming. <laughs> I hear, you know I mean? hear all it's, of that. It's, that. it's that type of thing. So you're kind of like, you're hoping... You're hoping against hope. Because remember when they won in 10-11, of course, you had the, it was the same old thing. You know, we started off, got knocked over for not very many, looked for all the world like we were going to get killed. And then suddenly you wake up on the, on the sort of the morning of, of the fifth day and Cook and, <laughs> Cook and Trot there. are still there. <laughs> and we're smashing it, you know, smashing them to all parts and got away with the draw. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, OK, we're, we're a little bit more interested in Adelaide now. Um, so that's kind of what it needs. It needs, it needs our team to show the people back at home that they're in it in order to get people up to the sort of level where they're, where they're raving and excited about it. I would just say about this current England test side that it is uh, almost unhinged in how mercurial it is. And if you think, you think back to, say, what would it have been, February, March time, going into that India series, and we're all saying, all right, it'll be a whitewash, fine, shrug your shoulders, move on. And, and they, they obliterated India in, in that first test match at Chennai. It came out of nowhere. You, you were there, Mark, right? Came out of nowhere, that result. Um, you think as well to the summer, uh, that they lost at Lords against India. Again, it, they looked second best, best for sure. And then they sort of stumble into Headingley with all that swirling stuff around the club itself. And then they played brilliant cricket, bowled India out in a session and a bit in that on that first morning. Out, again, out of nowhere. And they do have this tendency, I think, this side. Um, they can look incoherent and then they, and they can also just turn it on because they do have a bunch of match winners in amongst players who are playing for their positions and aren't quite sure whether they should be there or not. I think that combination allied to uh, Australia's unevenness and Joe made a really good point last week, or maybe the week before. He said, the messier the series, the better for England. And it has been a messy build-up. And it's looking like it's going to be a messy first test match. If they can spirit their way out the back door of the Gabba, then I do think it does open this series up in a peculiar way. And, 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 and no we, Perth means, that, you know, that's one to Australia anyway. Before you start, Perth exactly. is 1-0, yeah. right? So that's, and that's gone. Yeah. So, okay, good. And we know, we know Australia's yeah. 11 now, which, I mean, was... Announced incredibly early, uh, unprecedentedly three and a half days out. Um, and you look at that side, and there are obviously some very, very good players in there. But there are there are chinks of light for England as well. In that Marcus Harris, Travis Head are two batters that have got poor records against England, albeit not from a huge sample size, and in England. But they shouldn't hold any fear for England's bowlers. Um, and Warner is kind of the great unknown in this because which Warner is going to turn up? Is it the Warner that we usually see in Australia, which, you know, then England are in trouble. But even if it's even if it's anywhere like the Warner that we saw in England last time out, then that's a huge if you can get an early scalp there, Harris is a weak opening part partner, then I think there are areas of optimism. And then the bowling attack, it's harder to find areas of optimism. But but Stark struggles are are one and I think England's I'm not saying target him as in go after him and play outrageous shots, but I think if they can try and get on on top of Stark, um, he didn't look in good rhythm at all in the the T20 World Cup, didn't bowl particularly well against India either. Um, I thought you did a piece on him, which I thought was really interesting, how he progresses through a series as well as his record really tails off. Yeah, so he averages 24 across the first two tests of a series and that falls to about 50 in the last test of the series. So I don't see him playing five at least. So England's, I mean, England's top 
certainly their openers aren't aren't the players that are going to come out and have a go at Stark. But if they can nullify him and then start to take runs off him, kind of as as the middle order come in, then I think that is an area of vulnerability. Um, so there are there are areas there that England should be targeting, thinking we're not just going to hang in there to survive. There are areas that we can attack and show up Australia's vulnerabilities. Phil, another cause for optimism is your moment of the week. Well, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I haven't, uh, I haven't been picking from a long list, let's say, but just that, that minute-long clip on, on the Twitters uh, posted by the ECB of, of Ben Stokes smashing a, a 40-odd and then strolling off um, and sticking Craig Overton um, halfway towards Perth and Overton's reaction as well, just the whole body, you could see all that kind of nervous excitement, that build-up just oozed out of him, punctured, you know, and, and he just shrunk and flopped, basically, and knew, oh, God, yeah, I'm not going to play this series. I'm not going to play this series. And Stokes almost apologetically kind of looking away as the ball sails 100, 105 yards over the over the sight screen. And it was interesting to watch from a technical perspective. He's opened himself up a little bit more quite evidently. I don't know, Mark, if you saw this as a, as a southpaw. I mean, he's still kind of when the ball is delivered, he's more in a kind of conventional Stokesian position, but he's certainly starting in a more open-chested position. And, you know, we, we discussed this. We have discussed it many times, but it's interesting that he's added that element to his game. He looked very balanced in the bits that we saw, and he was the only one. Everyone else, it was a binary binary scorecard apart from Stokes. But, but look, his 30, return yeah. is immense, obviously. Uh, Burns got 37, uh, but the, the other ones don't make... Particularly pretty reading, Root made eight, Hamid seven, Milan nine, Bairstow, naught and 11. He batted twice and Butler also got naught and 11. Um, on last week's show, Butch, I asked you about the possibility of Bairstow playing ahead of Pope, which looks like what England may well do. Um, what, what, are you, what are you basing that on? Uh, the lineup they picked in that game, I, I think, is the 11 that they are thinking of, were thinking of playing at You that could point. look at that another way, though, right? That Pope was batting higher up and facing... More of England's first choice attack. Possibly. I'm possibly. not disagreeing, but I yeah. think you could look at that either, either yeah. way. And I re- basically, I'm just really hoping that's not yes. the way they're going to go. Well, because- I was going to ask you, I mean, can you see, can you just about get your head around why England might end up going that way? No. No, I think it would be a really regressive selection that kind of would set the tone of negative thinking. Um, I just don't think other test countries would do this you arrive it's not like Pope hasn't played any test cricket if he was a kid who had a first class average in the 50s but hadn't played a test match well then maybe you have to think is this the right time to throw him in he's got test runs he's had he's had difficulties but he's had highlights as well but beautifully in South Africa he batted really nicely on his comeback against India uh, I just can't see why they would possibly go to Bairstow I think there's more of an argument I wouldn't do it there's more of an argument to play Bairstow above Butler if, you, if you're desperate to get Bairstow in then I think that carries more weight than um, dropping Pope. I wouldn't do that either. I'd play Pope and Butler, six and seven. I think that works nicely. Um, there's just not the numbers to go on with Bearstar. It's getting kind of slightly ludicrous that they keep looking further and further back to something that he did. And even that, that Ashes series, obviously he got the 100 in Perth and he batted nicely through that series, but he didn't have such a monster series that he did. make played. another 50. Yeah, so series. it's not like he made himself undroppable. Mm. Um, so I'm I'm surprised by that, especially when you know what they all think of Pope and that England setup. Like, Root has spoken in glowing terms about him. I'm surprised they don't want to give Pope the best possible opportunity to to start the series and make a mark on it rather than potentially coming in later down the line when England might already be one or two down. So so trying to... Uh, uh, look, I'm, I'm with Joe on that. 
I would absolutely play Pope. I'd play Pope in a heartbeat. I mean, I certainly wouldn't consider dropping Butler, who I fancy might have quite a good series on those tracks. So I'm absolutely there. I'm just trying to figure out why, what the thinking would be. Now, obviously, there is a there is an experience element, and Root would have felt quite rudderless, I think, four years ago, going out there. Sean of Stokes, in particular, um, Cook didn't score a run apart from a, you know, a lot of runs cushy, a cushy <laughs> double at Melbourne. But aside from that, was struggling. He had a lot of Greenhorn players in there, so I can understand maybe as much for Root's peace of mind as anything else. I could understand that again. Don't agree with it, but trying to th- trying to figure it out, trying and rationalise it. The other thing possibly is if England are up in the game, then Bairstow becomes a potentially useful weapon in that middle order. If they happen to get a, a first in his lead, say, and they are looking to uh, kind of alleviate the fact that the top three are going to be slow, right? They're going to play their own way and they, you know, they're going to go at two and a half, three and over to then bring some proper impetus into the innings. Possibly they might be thinking, well, Bairstow becomes an interesting option as a kind of game changer for an hour or two. But Pope's a complete enough player to play both ways, isn't he? For sure, for sure. And exactly that, a more versatile batsman, for sure, over the five test matches. Um, I'm just trying to figure it out. That's all, trying to figure it out. And we're going as well on the the cancelled or rather postponed test match where the story was coming out, and I think it was Atherton as well as others saying, well, Bairstow was a stick-on to play in that test match, despite the fact that Pope had made 80-odd in the previous game at the Oval. Uh, Butler was coming back. We assumed that Bairstow would make way, but apparently he wasn't. So so it, it's it's looking likely that he probably will be the be the, be the first man in. What, what, Mark? I, I know you spoke about it last spoke week. about it last week, and my, my opinion has not changed. And I can't think... What, what is I mean, Bairstow's numbers then? going back... Or is it going back three years now? Yeah, Just they're terrible. What is the logic then? I don't know. Yeah, honestly, I don't. And you know, even even sort of picking up and, and running with the sort of the impetus idea of being in front of the game. You know, they've got the likelihood of Butler coming in behind and somebody like Wokes, etc. They've kind of got players like that already. Mm. I mean, how far in front do you think we're going to get? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so uh, it's just no, I don't, I don't get it. And again, I go back to, I go back to the way that Pope played in South Africa, and I go back to the, you know, the fact that he averages hundred here at the Oval, and I got, you know, lots of lots of reasons as to why you would imagine against a Kookaburra ball on bouncier pitches where there is not a massive amount of lateral movement that Pope's your Pope's your guy. Um, and just and, and again, I agree with Joe. Look, if you're gonna if we're gonna win down there, you're gonna have to be bold, okay? Now, England's team that won in 10-11, you wouldn't have turned around and said they were bold, but they did have a certain Kevin Peterson in their side. But they had an enormous amount of quality. They had 40-plus averaging batsmen. They had bowlers who were not only experienced, but also took their wickets at a, at a, at a very, very... Uh, well, I say not a very low rate, because James Anderson didn't before then, but that's since come down. And they had Graham Swan, right? They had their two, two and a half running over bowler first innings, wicket taker second innings. They had all of those things in place to win in 2010-11. This team has none of those things. None of them. It's got one batter who averages above 40 in Joe Root and the rest are all, are all scrapping around. So what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to take a leaf out of India's book a little bit and go a little bit fearless if you're going to win. And, and, and 
And I honestly, the only reason to pick Johnny Best over Ollie Pope is because you're worried that Pope doesn't have the experience of playing in Australia, and i.e. that decision is then made based on a fear about what the youngster might, how the youngster might react to something he's never done before, as opposed to, no, actually, we think that this guy is a brilliant player and he can go out there and make a difference for us. Mm. So, you know, that's a, it's a fear selection more than a, more than a sort of like, here, here are lots of positive reasons why we're going with Johnny over Ollie. Yeah, I've got, I got the logic of selecting Best and the Sun when there was no Stokes, kind of with what you were saying about having, having impetus in the middle order. But when you've got Root, Stokes, someone at six, Butler, you don't need that. No, um, sure. I thought, sorry, go back to the, the warm-up game. I thought the lineup that England picked in that England 11 was quite interesting. So the bowling uh, attack for that game was Leach, Anderson, Broad, Robinson, plus England Lions, Quicks, Mahmood and Norwell. Um, Joe, do you think that's the lineup of England bowlers England will slash should go for in that first test? So Leach, Anderson, Broad, Robinson, so no Wokes or Wood? This is a really tricky one. I've, I've thought about this quite a bit and I'm, I'm, I think so much of it is going to be picking the bowlers that suit the different conditions and, and being savvy enough to work out who's going to play. And you can't work it out all down to the fourth, fifth test, but I'm talking the first kind of two or maybe three. Uh, my issue, I think Robinson at eight is is a bit high, really. I would like Wokes in there. And I think obviously everyone points to Wokes's poor away record, poor record with the Kookaburra, but I think he's a better bowler than he was when he's been there previously. Um, so I would be tempted to get Wokes in there. How you do that is tricky. I would want to play Robinson. I'm kind of going down that route of you play one of Anderson or Broad and you play Anderson in the first one, you play Broad in the second. I'm not hugely comfortable with that because... You also kind of think you want Stuart Broad in the first test of an Ashes. He'll be so up for it. He's got a good record against Australia. And you would want Anderson with a with a pink ball the week after at Adelaide. It's, so you can kind of tie yourself in knots. Also, you want Mark Wood. You want some proper pace there as well. Uh, I haven't really answered your question, have I? <laughs> Basically, I want I want Wokes at eight. I think I think if England, particularly, we've talked about if they can if they can come away from the gamble with a draw, I think that's a really really good result. And I think. Robinson at eight is a, is a place too high when you need some runs for your tail. You need someone to stick. If you've got Butler at seven and you want him to play the kind of counterpunch innings, he needs some people to actually stick mm. around with him. Uh, and I would have concerns that Robinson and the rest, eight to 11, is not going to really do that. Butch? I, I think Wokes is a must in the side. And I'd, I'd go as far as to say I'd play him in front of, in front of Jimmy in the first test. So, because, because I just think there's more snap to his bowling than, than there is Jimmy's. I hundred percent agree, and that he is, you know, again the the numbers with the Kookaburra overseas are, are terrible, but he's so much a better bowler than that now. So much. I mean, you only have to watch the way that he bowled, and yeah. I know it's a different format, but in the World T Twenty, he was magnificent, laser-like line, perfect length, real kick and, and bite to it. He has to play for me now. Obviously, when thousands of miles away we haven't seen the preparation we don't know what sort of um what sort of rhythm or state that the, the rest of the guys are in but for me being that he has recently been playing i think he's an absolute must and you know take your pick leave out one abroad or anderson but at wokes place wokes takes the new ball and plays would you countenance we, we this is a recurring question on this show but would you countenance not playing a spinner at brisbane no. given the conditions well I, yeah i suppose if it looks like it's going to rain for rain for three and a half days and I suppose so yeah but that'd be the only reason any any test match in Australia that looks that, that is normal and it's going to go five days you play a spinner so otherwise you've got end of story you've got Leach you've got three seamers you've got Stokes as your attack yeah yeah, uh, yeah 100% 100% yeah. well I mean we're lucky because of Stokes I mean that's the whole point isn't it the whole point of having him is that you can 
that you play a spinner every single time. And Leach himself has said that the fact that Bennett wasn't around meant that he missed out most of the summer. Although I still think that they could have found ways of playing him if they'd, if they'd have really wanted to, but they didn't. Um, Phil, it looks like England will probably go with the top three of Hamid, Burns and Milan. Um, on Hamid and Burns, a lot of people aren't really giving them much of a chance of doing well this series. What, what, what do you think? Do you think that's fair or do, do, do you think there's a reasonable chance that one or, one or two of them could go pretty well? Uh, I mean, it's obviously flaky. Um Rory Burns is a very resourceful opening bat and gets written off every few weeks. Uh, and yet, he's the only one of the top three options if you think that Zach Crawley is almost certainly going to be the, the reserve at the moment. He's the only one that is is a stick-on. Uh, he's He's gone okay against Australia before. Um, went into that first test match here, uh, written off, only made 100. Um, Hasib Hamid, we all know the story. We all know the... The, the doubts, we all know the caveats regarding his technique, regarding the low hands, regarding the tendency to go nowhere at certain points in the innings and how in Australia, as Mark said, if you're going to stand half a chance of winning, then you have to be bold. Um, so, yeah, you, you can see all of the concerns. David Milan's, Milan's never batted in the top three away from home before and has only done it, what, in three innings, I think, for England. Uh and yet, and yet, they are kind of tantalisingly unknown cricketers in these kinds of scenarios, right? Um, Hasib Hamid, I have, I have concerns against real pace. His record throughout his career is poor. I mean, he averages comfortably under 30 in his career for Lancashire knots in England against proper pace. Um and then there is the, the point as well about Hasib that, you know, he was a child genius, as we all know. But then as the standard gets ever more intense and that level of that reaction time is pushed right to the to the the limits of what a human can actually actually deal with. It's possible that that's not his game. You saw him bat beautifully at times in England last year against medium fast swing. Maybe that's where he's at. But we don't know. We don't know yet. And the one thing to say about batting in Australia is if you can, with a bit of luck and a bit of nous and gumption, get through that first hour and a half, then it does become a place where you can you can bat and bat big. Um, I think most of us are kind of cautiously optimistic about Milan at, at three. I mean, he knows his game inside out now. He's got a bit, a lot more faith in himself than he used to have. You know, and I interviewed him actually a few weeks ago and he said I felt like an imposter in the England dressing room when he first turned up. But now because he's done some stuff in the in the white ball stuff, that he now feels like he has a place in that dressing room. And I think that's very important. Um I interviewed I spoke to Gary Kirsten about him last week and Kirsten thinks that he's 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 now a top quality player. Kirsten worked with him for years every winter in Cape Town. Uh, he says he's as organised a cricketer as he's come across. He's completely single-minded, all the rest of it. So, look, it's the obvious gap. It's the obvious unknown in this side. You kind of know what you're going to get if people play well in the middle order. But if, if these three go okay, that still might not be good enough. It's just very hard to make that call at the moment. This is the obvious concern. It feels like a mismatch. You know, Cummins and Hazelwood with the new ball against against... Burns and Hamid feels like a mismatch. Uh, but we've seen players of limited ability go out there and do okay before. Um, 
you know, Mark Stoneman went out there and for three test matches until he got clanged, he looked he looked okay. You know, that first session at Brisbane, he batted beautifully for 50-odd, you know, and played one false shot in the first three hours. So James Vince went out there and strummed a beautiful 80-odd on the first day at, at the Gabba and nobody gave him a sniff. So we, we go back see. to Michael Carberry. If, if yeah, you take the series that Carberry that had in 13-14 in for... Yeah. For one of these openers, yeah. Wouldn't he? I mean, I mean, that fellow over there walked into Brisbane a few years back, and people were saying, "Well, is he a Test player? He's just starting out. He's never played in Australia. He went out and strummed 116." Hmm. So you know, who can say? Um. So Phil, of of that top three, do you think? Would you say you think Milan's most likely to succeed in yeah. these conditions? Yeah, I would say so. Um. I, Rory Burns, I think I said this over the summer, Rory Burns has worked a lot on playing the pull shot because he didn't have a pull shot, certainly in international cricket for the first year or two. And so even on English pitches, he would get really clogged up, you know, under the armpit and so on. But it was noticeable last year against New Zealand in particular, where he played really well. He, he, He has now a flat bat shot, you know, perpendicular bat shot. Sorry, a horizontal bat shot. And obviously you need that. You need that. But playing it at Edgbaston is one thing. Trying to, to engineer a situation at the Gabba is another. Um, but on p- pitches in Australia, a lot yeah. of people talk about, oh, Australia is going to be really quick and really really hard. Mm. Um, are they actually as, as quick as, as they used to be? Um, not, not overall, no. I mean, you know, the, the Gabba is still, is still the place, I suppose. Wacker no longer exists. Dropping pitches at Melbourne... Adelaide is more for, you know, it's more, you're talking about the lights more than the surfaces and, and things like that now. Sydney has always been a, a great cricket pitch, really, I suppose, an even cricket pitch that that turns in the end. So, no, I, one of the things one of the things about batting in Australia, and it's, it's really, really interesting, is that it can be, particularly if the pitches start a little bit tacky, they can be slow, but they really kick at you. The ball kicks at you, and it, and it can seem and it can swing. And it feels like it's lavish. You know what I mean? It feels like it's really moving a lot. Um, the ball sort of humming to, through to the keeper, but it's not doing anything quickly. It's just sort of holding, but it it it, it stops and it and it bounces at you. So drives become almost impossible to play because the ball is always a foot higher than it should be from the length that it gets bowled. And it's very easy when the conditions are like that. You can imagine, you know, the Gabba. If if there has been a lot of weather around, I mean, I've seen the pictures of the pitch that Danny Rubin sent over two days whatever you know just don't just ignore complete waste of time two days two days out from a test match and don't yeah, bother looking and at yeah it. if, if, the, if it's going to be under covers but then if it's the, not going to change the weather stays bad then it then possibly but still it's kind of it's still two days before the test match so don't don't be concerned by that but all i'm saying is is that if if you end up with some real tackiness and there is a there is a tinge of green australia probably wouldn't hesitate in sticking us in either you know the the that they would look at the relative merits of our of our batting lineup, the relative merits of their bowling lineup, and think, well, why the hell not? You know, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be bloody challenging, really, really tough. Part of um, own possession position, I'd rather that Australia bat first. You know, if if it's not going to be a five day game, I don't mind Australia batting first at all. So you want to lose the toss then, right? Wouldn't mind that. Yeah, if it's no, I mean, put, thing is, you're a brave if it's a five English day game, I'm, I'm not saying that, but no, I, I wouldn't mind that. In a short, in a shortened game, I mean, I've had, I've had this, I had this argument with my old man when I was when we were captain and coach of the over. A shortened game, I'm thinking I want to bat second. Yeah, because you can bat exactly. once, you can bat once and win the game. If you bat first, you can't really win it. Exactly, you really can't. You kind of you're, you're screwed. You, you don't know how many, how long to bat for if you end up making runs and you can get knocked over for not very many and. 
you know, and the exact thing happens. The opposition then gets a chance to, yeah. to, to put 250 on you and then bowl again, and, that's, and you're under, all you're trying to do is save the game. So yeah. in a shortened match, you want to be batting second anyhow. Talking about fearlessness earlier, uh, it would be a very bold call for Joe Root to, to win the toss bowl first after Nasser and O2. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. But, I mean, you know... In, <laughs> Strauss, Strauss bowled first at the MCG and everyone said what the hell's he doing yeah. you know, and they bowled him out for 100 there is logic no, to it no hang on a sec didn't they, I thought Ponting won the toss and batted at, at the MCG in no, 2010 so. 11. no I think Strauss, no, Strauss checked, Strauss checked, Strauss checked, you sure yeah yeah because yeah. I remember turning up a little bit late and being surprised what Strauss decided to right, do okay well they bowled him out for 100 yeah. but, again, but again you know I, that's funny I was with um, very overcast day I was with Trez on um, uh, a couple uh, last week for, for a lunch at, at Lord's and Trez said he, he sort of he sheepishly put his hand up and said I was interviewing him for the, for the you know for the punters and he sheepishly put his hands up and he said, I said, we were in the dressing, in the dugout. We heard them roar outside, which meant we knew we'd won the toss. And he said, and he and he's opening the baton with Vaughan. The three of us started strapping our gear on, right? Well, at least me and Vaughan, he did. And he said, he said, you know what? I said, what? He said, I've not really told anybody this. I said, go on. He said, well, I batted in the nets and I happened to say to Nasser, it swung around a lot in the nets this morning. <laughs> <laughs> we were like, what? So it's your fault. Um, but, you know, it was... You know, it was it was thirty five degrees before <laughs> breakfast on that particular day, and the pitch pitch was biscuit brown. You know, there wasn't a blade of grass on it. I think it might be slightly different than that this time. So around. it's partially Triscothic's fault then. Part, I think, well, think Nasser he, he admitted Nas, to it. Nasser's yeah. pushed that line. I yeah. think it's in his book as well. But it's kind of isn't that a weird, isn't that a funny old thing though that you'd make a decision based on what you know? And the, the nets are in a different <laughs> different postcode. You know, they're miles away outside the ground. I, anyway, never mind. But that's but what happened happened. But I don't think you know. Again, if, if again if the game is shortened or it looks like there's going to be a lot of weather around, I don't think that the, you're going to be worried too much about trying because you can just get so far ahead of the game, can't you? And if and even if it goes wrong, it's not the end of the world because there's not enough time. Well, theoretically, there's not enough time yeah, left in the game for you to get pulled out <laughs> twice. <laughs> theoretically, um, Pat Cummins. Uh, as Joe mentioned earlier, confirmed the Australia eleven at least three, maybe even four days out of the first test. Um, the, the bits of news there are Travis Head, Pipping, Usman Khawaja to a spot five, Stark stays in the side and Alex Carey is confirmed to debut with the gloves. Um, a lot of people get all up in arms about naming the sides before the toss and all that. But I, and I admit, I don't get the logic, but I'm also not really sure what the difference is. Like, does an extra day of knowing that you're bowling at Travis Head instead of Usman Khawaja make that much of a difference? I, th- I think the argument, and I know Freddie Wilde of Crickviz uh, is particularly passionate on this, it doesn't make a big difference, but any difference it does make, even if it's 0.01%, is still an advantage that you don't necessarily need to give to the opposition, which I can I can understand that point of view. It's good from a kind of hype level, isn't it? I like, especially when it's one team announces it in advance, so you've got that, but you don't need the other one till the, till the toss. Gives you kind of plenty to get stuck into. But on, on I mean, the, I, it's, I it's, wish. The, it's the old Mike Tyson line, you know, everyone's got a plan until you get smashed, smashed in the mouth. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I see, the thing is, I like, I've always liked that idea. I've always liked the idea. It goes back to the, that, the Viv Richards thing at the toss, doesn't it? You know, you sort of, you play who you like. I don't even want to know what your team is. This is mine, you know, deal yeah. with it type thing. And I've always liked that, the idea of being confident enough in, in not only the players that you're picking, but also in the sort of like your, your game plan, such as it is. That you announce the team, you know, it doesn't matter. It, you know, it can rain for three days in the lead up. It can be blazing hot sunshine. That's my team, and and away you go. From I the, from the point smart. of view of the pickies, it's a it's a great. Sorry, thing. I thought it was a smart move. Else, you know, 
Marcus Harris was called up and confirmed two weeks ago. I thought that was that was a smart move. I thought that made perfect sense. You know, that would have made him feel good, relaxed, and then he can start focusing without wondering, without the self doubt creeping in too much. See, it, but the thing with England's team and teams um, historically has been that, you, that they're never. You've never kind of got like nine players that you're absolutely bolted on are going to play, or at least not for not for for about ten years or so. Mm. Um, and so, therefore, you're always you're always looking for these. You know, the, the, you, you're matching up two players. You're matching up Bester and Pope, for example. You're matching up two players against one another who who are relatively similar in terms of what they might give you in terms of output. And you're trying to work out which one on this particular day, given these conditions, given the moon being in. Uranus or whatever it might be that are going to do the best for you over the course of these five days and that's a, that's a tricky position to be in as a selectors and as a captain and all the rest of it because you're not really 100% sure so you know if ever if England get to a point during this test match series where they're announcing their team three three days before the game started it's either because loads of people are injured or because or because they finally decided okay these are the guys we want and we're going to play them regardless of the conditions um, I'd rather be in Australia's position than England's put it that way I think um, choosing head over Kawaja, I think, is is quite interesting in the sense that it's not, if I was Australia, it's not what I would have done. I think an England attack will probably be slightly pleased to see that selection, I'd have thought, based on, I mean, Head's had a good year in domestic cricket. Kawaja's had an excellent year. Head's got a good record in Australia. Head's got a good record in Australia. I just thought it was, I can't remember if we said this before in the show, but the great cricketer uh, interview they did with Ricky Ponting, he said Kawaja, should, he, he'd have picked Kawaja in basically every Australian test lineup since he made his debut. He thinks he's he thinks he's that good. And, you know, yeah. Ponting knows what he's talking about. Uh, I just think there's much more, I'd, I'd feel like there's much more chance of Kawaja going and scoring 100 against England than there is Travis Head. But, you know, yeah. that's obviously setting us up for a Travis Head century on, on day one of the Ashes. But. I'm slightly surprised uh, they didn't go to Kawaja opening instead of Harris. Harris doesn't have a great test record, hasn't had a great Sheffield Shield this year. Uh, Kwaja opening head at five, I think, was was an option. I I probably would have gone. Yeah, Kwaja's um, not opening in domestic cricket, that's true. is he? But that's obviously, true. he's done it before. Yeah. yeah. Um, last week we we half jokingly bigged up England's chances, um, but yeah, I'm gonna come to you guys for serious predictions in a second. Um, I was wondering before we, we you guys give your predictions uh, that if we have a slightly inflated view of how difficult it is to win in Australia than people perhaps in other parts of the world. Um, in the last 14 years, Australia have lost more home test series than England have. Um, Tim Wigmore wrote a good piece in the Telegraph on, on what it takes to win in Australia, um, making making a, a point that actually a few times Australia have lost a home quite a lot. And also it's not always 90 mile per hour bowlers who Indeed. do the business there. Um, exactly. And, and Siraj, etc. last winter. Um England, obviously, this entry lost twice to that great Australia side at the start in the first decade, and then one in 10, 11, 13, 14 happened, and then sent a not very good side out in 17, 18. Um, yeah, I, I think it will be, I think we'll go into the last two test matches of the series still alive, which we haven't been able to say for a while. Um, but what what are you guys going for? Phil, do you want to go first? I said 3 2 Australia in the magazine last month. Um, looking at the weather forecast in Brisbane, I'm going to be wild and I'm going to say 2 2. <sighs> Joe? Uh, I said 3-1 in the magazine, being a bit uncertain where the draw would come from uh, because I don't, don't think we'll be having huge scores throughout the series. But now with the, with the weather about, I'm, I'm feeling more confident in 3-1 Australia. Cool. Regrettably. Butch? Um, I'm, I think 3-1 Australia as well. I, I think England I think England are, are, are good enough and Australia are, 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 are not sure of themselves enough 
for it to still be alive going into the last two test matches. But I think Australia will be too uh, too strong. I think the home advantage, regardless of the fact that there's no Perth um, and the fact that they're, what, are they talking about replacing that with another day-night game at, at Melbourne? Or, or Hobart. Yeah, I mean, Hobart's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, or is it? Is that interesting? I don't know. It is interesting. Is it? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it's just like going to play at Headingley under, under <laughs> dank skies. Yeah. You can imagine that 2-2 going True, but I mean, the, the, some of the flattest pitches I've played on in Australia have been at Hobart. And of course, the flatter, the flatter the decks are, the less chance we've got. Hmm. I mean, that's, you know. That is true. That's that's one hundred percent. It was ever thus playing playing yeah. against Australia. The flatter the decks are, the less chance we got of winning. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that's fair. I, I, I think I'm still going to go three one Australia just because we've not really talked to him about, about about him much on this show. But Josh Hazelwood, the way he's bowling epic. at the moment, he's just he's so epic, good. He? He's just so good. Him, him and Cummins, that that could be. You, you, you're you're banking on Stokes and Root to be averaging north of fifty, or someone producing something that no one's really predicted uh i think for england to win more than one test i think those two are just too good anyway moving on um, um do you wanna, I'm, I'm, yeah stokes will average over 50 i'm guaranteed is that <laughs> well I'm, I'm trying to do that thing that people do in sport like say say, say wild statement. things speculative things but say it with enough conviction yeah. often they come true. back to bite people in sport, totally but <laughs> totally um but we're not recording this it's fine um well yeah i've i've put a tinkle on um Marnus and Stokes. Double. Just to be clear, you're talking about his batting average, not his bowling average. There. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Not leaving you that on, on, on a record betting site, which I believe is is the official Wisdom betting partner. Actually, um, anyway, seventeen to one. Don't bet, kids. Don't bet, obviously. But if you do, Marnus and Stokes, seventeen to one double. Oh, that's that's top mm. scorers for the series. Yeah, yeah nice. in it for each oh. team. Yeah, yeah it's, it's quite quite interesting actually. Everyone is. Just, England fans are just presuming Smith will, 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 will lead the way for Australia. But actually, in the last two winters in Australia, Minus has got loads more runs than, than, than Smith has. Um, anyway, moving on. Uh, Cricket 22 is, is out now. It came out four days ago on PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, Xbox One and Series X. S and PC. The latest from Big Ant, the biggest name in cricket simulations. Cricket 22 gives you unprecedented depth with new controls, gameplay, a narrative-driven career mode, a new commentary team, and all new team and competition licenses. Play along with this year's Ashes competition, take part on the 100, or move through the ranks to represent your nation at the highest level. Cricket 22 has it all, and remember, it's out now. Um, over to Mumbai, India beat New Zealand by many, many runs to take that series 1-0 and return to the top of the ICC Test Team rankings. Um, but Joe, that's not the most exciting thing that happened in the Test match. No, Ajaz Patel 10 for. He saw that coming. Well, Ben claims he did after the he first did, three. Was that say, verified? He did actually say that after yeah, three. He, he says a lot of things, though, doesn't he, Ben? <laughs> well, he, also, well, I mean, everyone about... says it. If, if, <laughs> if, if, if the bowler takes the first three, everybody always thinks it. It's, it's like if you pop five blacks and five reds, or oh, it's 147, it's on. The 147's on. Well, anyway. no, he did. He actually did. Uh, third player in <sighs> test history after Laker and Kumble. Probably, if we're being honest, not who we expected to, to follow in there footsteps um i'd said to matt thacker the week before i oh, don't rate that lad <laughs> <laughs> i mean imagine taking all 10 and getting absolutely humped yeah in the test match and i mean he didn't that's even just win the player of the match award did he not he didn't, he didn't win the player of the match award uh let me just double check who I'm, did i think agarwal agarwal what for 150 yeah 
Yeah, Agarwal, man of the match. It's a, good, it's a good knock. But I mean, lots of people have made 150 in yeah, test yeah. history. Only two other blokes have ever taken 10 for. That's yeah. astonishing. That is a shocker. Yeah. Although in those test matches, everyone kind of gets an award, don't that's they? True. So that's he'll true. have got something. IPL style. Yeah. yeah. Still. Um, 10 for. But, but yeah, oh I mean, he, was, what, he was almost 30 when he made his test debut. Didn't have, he had a decent first class record, mm-hmm. but nothing to write Play, home about. He was playing what? Second second division Surrey Championship. Yeah, yeah. playing for Cranley only. For Cranley. Yeah, two, he, he took two fifth, years ago. fifty six mm. wickets at eight in, yeah, the, in the second I mean, yeah, tier, and he and he played tidy. against a club that I played against last summer. How many how many wickets did you get in that game? Uh, I think we we I think we beat them. I can't. I probably didn't take many wickets, but um, you were economical. We, we, I can yeah. guarantee. Yeah, yeah. I probably went less than three, threes. Seven two on side field, yeah. just in the corridor. <laughs> <laughs> um, just 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 talking to tenfers. Um, I was talking to a lad at a, a party on Saturday night and he's, he's well into his cricket, but he didn't know about the Laker tenfer, the the one in 56 against the Aussies at Old Trafford. And it reminded me that a month before that, do you know this, Mark, that Surrey played Australia in that 1956 summer and Laker took tenfer on the first day here yeah, as, a month before, before the Old Trafford tenfer. Oh, wow. So yeah, talk about owning the Australians. That's yeah. sensational. Um, on the unlikelihood of it, Ben wrote a piece at Wisdom.com basically saying that AJ Patel is actually one of the more likely players to take a tenth for. Because, <laughs> of course because, he did. Because uh, he's someone who's pretty good. He's won tests for New Zealand and Asia before. But crucially, is much, much better than the other spinners in his team. Well, this is it. So, um, yeah. Somerville didn't take a wicket in the series. In the series. Ravindra is predominantly a batter. And if you look at recent examples of players getting close, it's Maharaj South Africa, Harath for Sri Lanka, and Murali for Sri Lanka. So I can't, yeah, well, I do this, see the logic. This kind of leads to yeah, these but, 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 hang on a sec. But they've got bloody, you know, they've got, We've got some Tim Southey yeah. playing and, and, and their Jay, Carl Jameson and whatever. Most of the wickets first. But it, it did lead me to think that. Is is the ten for one of kind of crickets more overhyped? Because we celebrate it because of its rarity, but actually, given what's involved in the record, it, you basically have to rely on your teammates having a not very good day. Hadley was always to... taking eights and nines, wasn't he? And also, if if uh, if Southie or Jameson had taken a couple of early ones and then Patel took, came on and took eight, would that have been any less of an achievement? Like, yeah, it, it, no, I mean, so if... all of these things come down to probability in the end, don't they? And it's incredibly improbable that you're going to take all ten. Like that, there wasn't some dopey run out or some yeah. some bizarre thing, you know, occurrence happening at the other end. It's just the probability. Hence, there's only been three of them. Are incredibly, incredibly rare for it to go ahead. So, we, we, but we, that's we, it. They're rarity. But we we really. As cricket fans, you can't lose that record, the 10 for, and maybe think as well of the highest test score, which you know, I, I've never been that impressed by, to be honest, because they always come in either really dull draws or incredibly one-sided games. That performance... Well, they, well they, don't very, they, don't, they very rarely come in a game where your team gets absolutely humped. I mean, that's, that's another that, part yeah, of it as well. Yeah. He lost by 372 <laughs> runs and he took 10 it, for. He was also, un, he was also un, he was unbeaten with the bat in both innings as well. <laughs> was he? <laughs> Oh, you can't be feeling um, pretty good about that. <laughs> um, sorry, just briefly back on the Laker thing, just on that point yeah, yeah. about you have having to be on a different plane to the rest of them. But obviously, famously, Tony Locke was at the other that's end. True, Tony Locke true. was he was no slouch, no yeah. slouch at all. <laughs> and Laker took nineteen of the twenty wickets in that Test match, and Locke increasingly grouchily just driving it into the pitch from the well, other end. Well, wasn't Harbajan at the other end when Kumblake took ten? Very young Harb. I think it's possibly a teenage Harbajan. But still, I mean, he was string, lethal. As he was string, quite good as a teenager. Still, that's true. And, and but I think famously, Srinath bowled it really wide mm. at the other end when he, when he was getting close. Um, my which, my, which my favourite, me... um, we're going on, sorry, my favourite of all, Graham Onions, dropped by England, 
twelfth man drove back. I think it was against Notts, obviously for Durham. Went to Trent. It was a Trent Bridge, wasn't it? it was Trent Bridge, yeah. yeah, Trent Bridge Championship game. Took nine first nine to fall, fielding at square leg. Tenth wicket to obviously waiting for him to happen next over. Bloke plays it out of square leg. Onions picks it up. Fuzzes it down, takes the <laughs> takes the leg stump out, the non-striker, then and walks off, having run it, running basically himself out of history. <laughs> oh no! Didn't Richard, jo- Richard Johnson got ten? Didn't he play? He for did. Yeah, six? yeah, yeah. For Middlesex. Yeah. Um, have you seen what happened at the end of Murley's nine for fifty-one against Zimbabwe? Was it something to do with uh, with Chaminda Vass? Yeah. So basically, Shranka were really desperate for him to get there, so they brought on Tilan Samaria Wira to bolt the other end, a very part-time offie, um, but. The Zimbabwe last pair batted for quite a while, so they eventually took Samara we were off, brought Vars on, who's bowling like pretty slow, floaty stuff, well outside off stump. Number 11 goes for a big booming drive, nicks it, very, very clear nick. No one appeals, but some, <laughs> someone must have done very quietly because the, the umpire sheepishly puts his fingers up. <laughs> <laughs> and they, and they the walk. young lad at fine leg <laughs> yeah. he doesn't know the, the gig yeah I think it might have been Sangakara who, who took the catch he kind of like celebrated and, and then kind of realised what he was doing and then shut up basically um, actually it's, it's, yeah almost a bigger shock that Ajaz Patel got one is that Murali never managed it yeah. given that he bowled pretty much all day across the whole of his yeah. test career and they were trying to fix it for him yeah. so. um, we should talk about Ashwin briefly uh, he, he took eight wickets in the test and now only Murley has more player of the series awards than Ashwin and Ashwin's only played 81 tests which is pretty impressive uh, Ashwin now has 427 test wickets at 24 strike rate at 52 that strike rate is lower than both Warren and Murley um, going going pretty well astonishing um, isn't it I yeah. mean what's what, the, the, I suppose the, the one blemish on that entire record is the fact that he doesn't seem to be able to get a game outside of India which is just which is just bizarre and he was really good in Australia last winter as well. Yeah, through no, um, just through sort of no fault of his own that he that his reputation, and I'm certainly not I'm besmirching his reputation, but his reputation seems to be will always be slightly tarnished, and that people will assume that he just took all of those 427 wickets at 24 on pitches like the second test in Chennai, which is not the case. You know, it's not true, but that's that's the perception which I've just reinforced. <laughs> I don't agree with it, but I've reinforced it. Um, moving on, we've we've had we've had more developments in the Yorkshire story over the last few days. Uh, on Friday, Yorkshire announced that 16 members of staff were to leave the club, including director of cricket Martin Moxon, head coach Andrew Gale, and the entirety of the coaching and backroom medical teams. It was reported in the Times that every member of staff that that have left signed a letter to the club in October criticising Azim Rafiq's behaviour at the club, as well as criticising the club for publicly apologising to Rafiq. It's also been reported that a number of players are unhappy with the club's decision to let go of those 16 members of staff. Um, This morning, it was confirmed that Darren Goff will be the club's new director of cricket initially on an interim basis until at least the end of the 2022 season. Um, But you played alongside Goff for, for many, many years. What do you make of that appointment and what do you think he'll bring to the club? Well, some much needed um, sort of uh, positivity for sure. I mean, I, I, I love Goffy. I mean, you know, we've worked together a little bit in the in our sort of post-playing careers with talk sport and things like that and he's just, it's just fantastic. And one thing about him is, is that he, he might sort of make big statements or what people think are big statements or, you know, he's a, he's a, is a former 
England Test legend who then goes on to talk about football as though he, he was a, you know he scored five hundred goals for Spurs or something. You know what I mean? He kind of he he anybody in anybody else's mouth the stuff that Darren Goff comes up with would be seen as being unbelievably arrogant, um, slightly ridiculous, all the rest of it. It just would. And we know we have examples of people who have played for England in the recent past for whom similar things sort of are, are absolute indictments on their personality as opposed to being recommendations for Charm it. goes a long way, right? Well, exactly. Goff, he's a, he's a bloody legend. And the fact that he's stepped into this breach when, quite frankly, um, most people would have been heading off in the other direction kind of just reinforces everything that I think about him. He's just an, he's an extraordinary bloke. Now, some people might say, well, look, Goff, Goff would have been around. He's, he's played for Yorkshire during the, the, the period of time we're talking about, and they've just sacked everybody. They've sacked people that weren't even at the club when Nazim Rafiq were around, and, you know, lots of talk about inclusion and sort of fairness and whatever, and there's a lot of people who in that, in that bunch, of, in bunch of staff who've been sacked who would say, well, wh- where is the fairness and the inclusion in, in our sacking? And, I'm, and, and, and Yorkshire are going to be facing employment tribunals from now until... Kingdom come probably after what's happened. So I, you know, I still I think they've <laughs> they've started off handling this thing incredibly badly, and they're continuing to do so as far as I can see. But Goffey will come in, and uh, he will he will be he'll be straight. He'll be a Yorkshireman for sure, um, and he will and he will try to sort this mess out. And the, and the only way he knows how, and that is running at it rhino-like, head first. Um, and I wish him all the very 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 best of luck. I think a lot of people, and perhaps myself included, won't even really be sure what a director of cricket actually does because some counties have a director of cricket and a coach some don't have a director of cricket at all what what's your take on what well, he'll actually be doing there? i mean i don't know what the the directors of cricket have done um here at the oval in the past and i know obviously alec alec is uh, in that job now i mean his his job is is kind of is, is almost desk bound i suppose he will, you will see him out on the park with with the old tracksuit on and, and doing a little bit of bit of throwing or working with the wicket keepers from time to time, but you know during the winter time he'll be sorting out programs for the for the uh, for the youngsters for the youth um, programs coming up. He'll be sorting out transfers. You know he's a little bit like football manager in that you know he's looking at overseas players. He's looking to fill in the slots um, that get thrown up by. Um, the blast and then then what happens during the 100 where you're trying to fill players in where players are going to be leaving All it's it's a hell of a lot more complicated than it used to be when, when you'd basically have one squad that played everything um, and that's what the director of cricket does nowadays it's a, it's a wide ranging job that, that isn't necessarily focused on the, on the comings and goings or the, the preparation for the first team it, it sounds like one of the reasons he's been brought in is that he's, he's viewed as a unifying figure in the in the wake of the, the hearing in particular, someone who uh, has the respect of some of the people who uh, have not come out particularly well from this, but also the, the respect of Rafiq. Yeah, been, I mean, he's Rafiq, been publicly very supportive of Rafiq throughout the process. Yeah, he well, has. He? he has. I mean, and, you know, I suppose that's if you're gonna if you're gonna if you're gonna get one thing right, then that's probably a, a good place to start. Um, you know. <laughs> He's got to find. He's got a hell of a lot of work to do, isn't he? Between now and the end of the season, he's got to he's got to find people willing to come in and work for the organisation. He's going to have to fend off, as I've said, sort of litigation from people who have recently lost their jobs. Um, he's going to have to try and reassure the playing staff that um, you know things are going to get back to uh, to to get back to a focus upon cricketing matters and, and and nothing else. He's got to try and convince the local community that the place is in fact inclusive and welcoming of of uh, of, of minorities um it's it's one heck of a job 
It's a hell of a lot more difficult than, uh, than talking about football between four and six thirty on Talksport. <laughs> yeah. That is for sure. And, 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 and take a sizable, sizable pay cut was yeah. the report as well. A huge pay cut, apparently. Exactly. So all the more credit to him, really. Um, suggestions that um, McGrath, Anthony McGrath might be tapped up. Obviously, he's done well at Essex. Uh, Goff will know him very well, of course. He's a Yorkshire Yorkshire player, many years himself. Um, yeah, suggestions that he might be heading north as well, and 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 uh, leaving the Essex job, which would be an interesting development again. Open that one up for Tenskata, possibly. Oh, yeah, of course. My, my prediction, Joe, mm, I might have to bring it forward from place. five years to three. Featuring <laughs> the coach, Mark, by the way. Tendo, featuring the coach. We don't need to do this again. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there was some sad news over the weekend. Uh, Eileen Ash, the oldest ever Test cricketer, passed away at the age of 110. Uh, Ash made her Test debut in 1937. Um, and then 80 years after she made... Her test debut, she rang the bell at Lords ahead of the 2017 World Cup final. Um, there's a there's a portrait of Ash at Lords uh, in the middle of her England career during World War Two. She was seconded to MI6. Um, uh, remarkable life. Um, I, th- I thought so with her family and friends. There's a there's a, there's a great video of Ash uh, flying a tiger moth on her 106th mm. birthday on the Sky Sports social channels. So I would. Uh, very much recommend that. It's they brilliant. don't make them like that anymore. Yeah. And she said she basically got into cricket because she, she was working in the civil service. She found out you get time off if you if you had a, if you played a professional sport or international sport. So she took up cricket and within a year she was playing a test match for England. And the irony of that, of course, is now, that now being a professional cricketer means you get time off from playing professional cricket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Snark, um, snarky, bitter old player. <laughs> um, something quite funny happened in the Abu Dhabi T10 final uh, you might have missed this um, Adil Rashid in a side featuring but not captained by crucially Owen Morgan didn't bowl a ball as um, the opposition openers Andre Russell and Tom Kyler Pat Cadmore piled on 159 for none from their 10 overs he didn't bowl a ball who did um, captain uh, DJ Bravo was the captain and he decided to to, to give Fazel Hack Faruqi Romario Shepard Dominic Drakes Ravi Rample and himself the, uh, the 10 overs, uh, Russell hit 90 off 32. And uh, yeah, obviously one, one, they, those guys won by absolutely miles. Um, I wonder what Morgan would have been thinking in particular. Rashid would have been confused, but Morgan was like, what's going on? He anything? There's no... Uh, you haven't checked, he, have you? Well, I, I, actually, I, he, he, had, he was bowling in every other game up until then, and he batted nine. So I presume I presume he was fit to bowl. I mean, it was a match-up thing. I don't know, but very strange. You, you hope there was, a, there was an injury there to, mm. to explain that. Um, I reckon he'll bounce back. You know. I think, yeah, he'll go for it. If <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't already. He <laughs> might go for that one. Um, <laughs> it's probably a bigger deal for me than it is for Rashid. Almost certainly. My moment of the week, by the way, is, is, is about another England leg spinner. It's a, a ripping googly from England under-19 mm. leggy Rahan Ahmed in their series against Sri Lanka under-19. Uh, I've genuinely not seen many googlies that have turned more than that. It was a, it was to, to take the last wicket of a reasonably close win in that series. Um, um, not many other highlights for the under-19s. Quite low scoring, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah they're bundled out twice for 100-odd mm. in 50-over games. On Rian Ahmed, though, he's... Um, People might remember he he bowled I think Root and Stokes in the nets at Lords when he was about thirteen or fourteen and he was on the books at Knotts and then oddly in the kind of counterintuitive way that we come to expect he decided to leave Knotts and went to Leicestershire instead mm-hmm. and I think he's the first under nineteen England cricketer from Leicestershire for for quite a long time but I think it might be even almost like a decade so there's a lot of pride about him at the club um, and he looks this. looks really exciting 
Um, That's yeah. top class knowledge, and he, Joe. He, he, he played five or six Royal London games in summer when he was only 16 as well. So. And he bats too. Oh, excellent. Wow. Remember the name. So he's got um, his own bat, has he? <laughs> <laughs> um, we had a belter of an email in from Tom. Hi there. My name is Tom. I'm 37 years old. And Strong I'm, start. And I'm one of those new cricket fans that discovered the game during the early days of the pandemic. I've never played an org- on an organised side, but was aware of cricket through a childhood friend whose dad played when I was young. I also live on the wrong side of the Atlantic in Canada. I don't have many friends who follow the game other than that one childhood friend who casually follows along with his father. So my newfound fandom is mostly a solitary endeavour. I found your podcast and since I live somewhere where cricket isn't mentioned in the news or on television, your podcast has become mandatory weekly listening for a peek into the world of cricket. Because of this, I felt compelled to write to you and let let you know that your coverage of the recent events in the game, both on the pitch and most importantly off it, have been phenomenal, insightful and thankfully well-balanced in their approach to some very complex issues. So thank you for that. Now, as a new fan, I have a question that's been bothering me for the last year and a half of me watching and I know I can't be alone in this. Being from North America and being a huge fan of both baseball and American football, it seems unconscionable to me that a game would ever be stopped due to bad light. Having followed the recent New Zealand-India test, I was beside myself when on the final day with nine batters gone, the game was called due to bad light and a draw was taken. How is this even a possibility? There are stadiums with floodlights playing host to world-class athletes performing in front of a television audience of millions or maybe even billions in the case of India. And we're supposed to be okay with the draw after five days. I remember this being a huge uh, issue with England playing host through last summer with bad light in Manchester and, and at other venues. Can someone please explain to me how the game hopes to draw in new fans like me when this is considered acceptable? It seriously made me question why I bother following along with these games now that um, other sports are back in full swing. There's a beauty and pace to cricket that's great, like baseball, but at least I know I'm going to get a result with baseball that's based on the action on the field and not what some like me to says. Uh, Phil, do you have a go <laughs> answering that one? <laughs> oh, short straw. <laughs> um, well, yeah, first of all, great email. Lovely to, to have Tom listening in. Um, it's, it, it's nothing, it's, it's both... Simultaneously, classically cricket and infuriatingly cricket. Um, there are, unfortunately, um, legitimate reasons for why players do have to go off towards the, the, end, the end of a day when the balance between bat and ball becomes so skewed towards towards the fielding side. Um, and so the integrity of the competition, of the, 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 the tussle, becomes uh, negated, if you like. And so... And it can also become dangerous as well, and not just for batsmen, for fielders as well. Um, so th- that's the his- the history of it. Uh, can can the can the line be shifted slightly to allow for a, for for a little bit more leeway? Um, arguably, by a few percent for sure. But you do run the risk of the game becoming farcical towards the back end of a day, as well as dangerous. Um, the thing that's always frustrated me, especially in England, is we lose four, five, six, seven overs a day regularly, routinely from Test match cricket, and often it's to do with bad light rolling in along with a bit of rain around and so on towards the back end of a day, especially towards the 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 latter part of the summer as well. But we start at eleven o'clock because we still think that we're 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 stuck in the in the age of grace and and you know and stoddarts and all of that and and well lunch is at one and we start at eleven and that's how it is because that's that's the English way, which is ludicrous. 
the Ashes 05, and this was due to TV, the Ashes 05 started at half 10 and you didn't have this problem towards the back end of the day. I wouldn't have any issues starting at quarter past 10 or half past 10. And then, and then you do negate this problem. Admittedly, you can get bad light at one in the afternoon. Of course you can. But if you are talking about at least reducing these infuriating moments when legitimately people who are new to the game go, what the hell's going on here? Hold on a sec. Um, there are ways that you can mitigate against this problem up to a point. Um, but even with floodlights, with a red ball, and there is, again, a question, you know, you could maybe use a different ball, although it's so complicated because, of course, the ball is so integral to the, competi- to the, to the contest. It's not like in baseball where you can just change, change a baseball every, every, every hit. But that is an important, that's an important point to emphasize, isn't it? That it's the it's the you think the floodlights are on, why can't you play? Is this, the idea is that the dark red ball is too hard to pick up. So you know when you have a day night test, you play with the pink ball instead. So could you bring out the pink ball at a certain time in every test match? Would be bring one possible option. But you know that that potentially creates issues in itself because the pink ball is deemed to do more, and then you could have kind of a, a flurry of wickets, which might just become part of the game potentially but the, mm. the, the problem is there's no consistency you have different yeah. I guess not- the other thing to question is that a draw is a fine result I think if you're a long term cricket fan you're, right. you're, you are I, fine I, was, with- a draw, I, I, a I didn't want to fine, send Tom a draw, away a draw is a fine result as long as it comes to a natural conclusion I, That's think, I think point, Tom's, Tom's yeah. annoyed that you know that if the match if, I don't know how many overs were left actually but uh, when, the, when Bear Light called the game they actually got through fine. the overs but there was a bit there of time, was, there was time left about 15 there minutes was 15 left, minutes left. Yeah. so, so the, you know potentially the game could have ended up in a draw but you'd have liked to have seen that get right the way through to stumps being called naturally um, you know, and I think in uh, particularly in a lot of countries, it, England is always bloody tricky because, you, as, as Phil said, you can have the bad light can come in at five o'clock in the afternoon, which at ten thirty start won't make any difference. You know that that's bad weather more than it is a problem with the sun going down because we all know that we could play here at, in high summer um, until sort of eight thirty at night without needing floodlights as long as there are no clouds around. It's the weather is an issue for us here in the UK, but in um, you know in the subcontinent in the West Indies. Um, even Australia and, and South Africa, you pretty much know exactly what time the light is going to get bad. Um, and so you can mitigate that by starting a little earlier in order to give yourselves time. And it, it rolls into another thing, which is something else that you'll become very familiar with if you stick with the game, and that is overrates. And the, the teams are supposed to bowl 15 overs an hour. They don't, and therefore you end up with a surfeit of, of overs left um, at a time of the day when the game is supposed to have finished. Hence, you get more problems with bad light. Welcome um, to the rabbit hole, Tom. Well, 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 Enjoy. Exactly. I mean, he, he's not. Understandably, Do you think we just put him off for good. He's, <laughs> he's not. He's not going to be happy with, with, with that answer, and uh, with good reason. All, all we can say is, you, you have you have to get used to the vagaries and the eccentricities and the maddening uh, intransigence of the game. Sometimes it's just so stuck in it in its ways, and you want to shake it just for signs of life. Um, and so, yeah, you, you, I'm afraid, Tommy. Oh, oh boy, you're going to have to get used to this one because this is the nature of the beast. Um, Sorry. George got in touch to say, just a small contribution to one of your more pointless debates, especially for Phil. Um, so on last week's show, we, we had a listener oh, ask... This is a good one. We had, uh, we had a question that was, uh, who, would, who would win in a game between 11 batters and 11 bowlers? And we basically ended up saying the bowlers would win. 
Um, and one of the examples I gave was Rory Burns bowled in the summer for Surrey against Leicestershire, and he didn't look very good. I didn't think he'd be able to get Jimmy Anderson out, etc. Um, and Phil but, implied he'd take Rory Burns to the cleaners as well if yeah. he was facing him, I think. But George, the... George got in touch to say, just a small contribution to one of your more pointless debates. Rory Burns has taken a fifer to win a thriller by one run against eventual Surrey Premier League champions that year, Wimbledon back in 2011. Um, a certain G Butcher was playing that game as well. Um, so apologies to, to Rory. I, I slagged off your bowling on last week's show and I, I apologise for that. Um, <laughs> Phil, will you also be apologising? <laughs> Sorry, Rory. Alec Watson asks, what's your favourite kit of all time? Is it 1992 World Cup? Or uh, I think the Sunday 40 over competition in the early to mid-90s had some belters. Um, <laughs> Go. <laughs> really got to prep us for these ones. Uh, no, but <laughs> but my, my, fa- my, my favourite kit of all time yeah. was the Sri Lanka second kit in the most recent tournament. I thought it was absolutely stunning. Favourite of all time? Well, right up there. Okay. Recency bias there, I yeah. think. Is Poss- there. Possibly, possibly. I mean, but I can't think of any kits now. So. 99 World Cup kits were either amazing or awful. I I they were ni- the 92 World Cup kits were the, were the, they, the they iconic were the ones, ones yeah. weren't they? The, yeah. yeah. England's... England's um, kind of baby, baby blue. blue. Yeah. That was, I think, that was England's best kit ever. Yeah, and they uh, and they reprised that, didn't they, for the World Cup here in, yeah. in 2019? Uh, and then, of course, the, there's no there's there's no getting away from um, the the rather uh, insulting pink that the West Indies were made to oh, play in in World say. Series cricket, and of course. The uh, the dirt brown that New Zealand played in during the during the eighties as well. So those would be my oh, three favourites. Yeah, inspired the the Beige Brigade. That's right. Yeah. But those and they the wore it for the first ever T Twenty international. Oh, when they were all wearing wigs. Mm. But the, the certainly mm. the, there's a really good photo on Getty somewhere of, of all eighteen captains of the Sunday AXA Sunday League competition. Some of the kits were absolutely appalling for that. Mm. Actually, and the Surrey Brown didn't and, come and across were, too well there. They as well. were made those acts of once. They were made out of some non-breathable. It was like polyester. They were horrific. <laughs> the smell in dressing rooms at the back end of one of those games was something that was just. Well, anyway, you know, a little dose of of COVID to to lose your sense of smell might have been a good thing to have. So, this is, I think, I've, this is this is the worst kit I think I've ever seen. It's England's ODI kit for their tour of New Zealand in ninety six, ninety seven. Um, we we're talking about Darren Goff earlier. Um, this is not very audio friendly, but have a look at that. Yeah, I'll post a, this on Twitter later. Um, yeah, <laughs> that, is, that is pretty awful. Um, and finally, question from Shervo. He's got in touch again. What's the best cricket-related Christmas present you've ever received? <laughs> oh, um, both of them Ashes video VHS from Manan, 1986. Oh, That's six-year-old yeah, changed my life. Good. I don't think I've ever received a good Christmas-related Christmas present. Um, cricket-related Christmas present. Sorry, I always get books. I've, like, I really don't need cricket books. That is one thing I have constant access to. So, if any family members are listening, please do not buy me a cricket book this Christmas. Excellent. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I've had a Christmas one, but um, when I was about thirteen, me and a friend went to the Australia-Pakistan neutral test match at Lords. Classic. And they were. This is where this was the, the end days of Mongoose as a cricket company. So they were selling the Mongoose bats for like 40 quid so we basically split our lunch money to buy the bat and went went hungry the whole day and then for my birthday that year he said you can have my half of the bat so i think that's, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the best cricket related present I've that's lovely um but do you get given cricket related presents these days yeah every once in a while i'll get some yeah some shonky thing although <laughs> i tell you what i did get one the other day i was very very pleased to receive because um somebody from this lovely office sent me the uh 
the bottle of rye whiskey with the mm. with the big old whiskey tumbler, which is probably the best cricket related present you, the whiskey, that you the could jar. get. I've just got the six beers. Me too. Yeah, 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 I've yeah, got yeah. the six yeah. beers. Yeah. Right. Unlucky. Well, you can get both the rye and the beer at wisdom.com forward slash shop. It's damn good. Anyway, that is all we have time for. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Joe. Cheers, Butch. This has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast in association with Charles Tirrett. Um, We'll be back next week after the first test. If you enjoy the show, please do tell your friends. Cheers. Podcast Network.